Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Wednesday, January 25th, 2023 and the end of week 48 of the Russia-Ukraine War. It's been 3,255 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 336 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. content warning for today's episode. In both the Russian mobilization and war crimes and human rights segments, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about, specifically sexual violence. If you find this topic sensitive, please feel free to skip those segments. Timestamps are in the description. Let's go ahead and get started with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative except on the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Second, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine remains combat ineffective and continues to use World War II tactics that Field Marshal Gergi Zhukov would recognize to move the line of conflict. Third, we maintain that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned with private military company or PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin will continue. Fourth, We assess there remains a very high risk of punitive missile strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure before the end of January. Fifth, we further assess that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Sixth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Seventh, We maintain there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in January or February 2023, which may have already started after a statement made by Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov. And finally, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of a major offensive operation is only a remote possibility. Let's get some regional updates, starting in the Donbass region with Luhansk. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported that fighting was light and positional along the entire axis. On the Svatova axis, positional battles continued on the eastern edge of Novoselivsk and the northern edge of Kuzimivka, with no significant changes in the situation. On the Kremina axis, Ukrainian sources reported heavy shelling and positional fighting in Ploshanka, and the surrounding forested areas. Positional fighting continued in Chervonopopivka as well, 
with no change in the situation. The general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that Ukrainian positions near Kremina and in Kuzmina were shelled. The GSAFU and the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported that Ukrainian positions in Dibrova were also shelled. Positional fighting between squad and platoon-sized forces continued in the Serebriansky woods. Mercenaries with Rybar reported that Russian-occupied Rubizhne was heavily shelled. Unseasonably warm weather has caused the Siversky Donets River to partially thaw, which means no more crossings without bridging equipment. Serhi Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, said during an interview that another settlement in Luhansk had been liberated, adding that the official announcement will have to come from the general staff. In October, the GSAFU announced that liberation announcements would not happen until a settlement was under full military control and no longer targeted by continuous artillery strikes. To meet these requirements, the line of contact needs to be 5 to 10 kilometers away. The GSAFU claimed that over the previous 10 days, there has been a decreasing number of regular Russian military personnel on the front and an increase in the number of Mobics pushed into heavy fighting. It was also reported that the families of soldiers in the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, 2nd Army Corps, are being evacuated to Russia. That is the pre-2014 Russia, not the we annexed Ukraine and now this is Russia, Russia. In northeast Donetsk, on the Siversk axis, the GSAFU reported that fighting continued in Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, with no change in the situation. On the Solidar axis, Ukrainian forces have stabilized their defensive lines and are complicating PMC Wagner and Russian forces' ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, into Solidar. PMC Wagner continued their attempts to advance on Rozdolivka from Krasnopolivka without success. The GSAFU reported that a Russian attack on Sil was repulsed, confirming our earlier assessment that the satellite village of Solidar remains contested. Alexander Yaromchuk, a photojournalist with Federal News Agency of Bosnia and Herzegovina, broke Operational Security, or OPSEC, and reported he couldn't enter Solidar because Ukrainian forces had remote-mined all the G-locks into the Russian-occupied town, and his vehicle came under artillery fire. Russian forces have three access points into Solidar that converge on the eastern edge of the city. The T-1302 highway from the north and the south and a road that connects to Papazna. To the southwest, BMC Wagner continued to be unable to make progress toward Krasnahora. On the Bakhmut axis, fighting continued on the northeastern and eastern edges, with Ukrainian forces holding their defensive lines. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, showed a thermal anomaly in a residential area in northeastern Bakhmut near heavy positional fighting between Ukrainian and PMC Wagner forces. We don't have the sufficient intelligence to determine who is on the receiving end of the artillery strikes. South of Bakhmut, the GSAFU reported that Ukrainian forces successfully defended their positions in the Klishivka area. Six days after PMC Wagner claimed they captured the settlement, still no pictures or videos have been released. We maintain that Russian-aligned forces control most or all of the settlement, but the failure to release visual confirmation is highly unusual. In our assessment, PMC Wagner has likely not established military control of the settlement.
Our assessment yesterday that a Russian attack in the area of Stupochki with a squad or platoon-sized reconnaissance unit was accurate. Finally, mercenaries with Wargonzo reported that a large artillery barrage struck PMC Wagner forces in Kurdyumivka. In southwest Donetsk on the New York axis, Russian forces continued their attacks on Novobakhmutivka with NASA firms showing new thermal anomalies. As with most of the pictures and videos we reference, we do link to the image in our full situation report on Patreon. The 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, launched an attack on the Ukrainian stronghold in Krasnokhodivka from Novoselivka Druha and were unsuccessful. See, Krasnohorivka is on a plateau, surrounded by water obstacles, and has multiple G-locks supporting the Ukrainian stronghold. DNR separatists can't capture Avdiivka without capturing Krasnohorivka first, because Krasnohorivka enables Ukrainian forces to maintain fire control over the approaches to Avdiivka. On the Avdiivka axis, there was only positional fighting. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR shelled central Avdiivka and made another attempt to advance from Spartak without success. DNR separatists briefly recaptured the northern part of Vodiana, but could not hold the territorial gains and were pushed back. Wargonzo reported ongoing positional fighting in Pervomaiske, with no change in the situation. On the Marinka axis, there was only positional fighting in the city center. On the Vulidar axis, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Khodakovsky commanding officer of the Vostok Brigade of the DNR 1st Army Corps, reported a large-scale offensive had been launched by his unit. Other Russian sources minimized the DNR role, claiming the reconstituted Russian 155th Guards Naval Infantry was leading the offensive. Lieutenant Colonel Khodakovsky wrote on Telegram, quote, There is an activation in the Vulidar direction. Our troops were given a tough order. To the west, the order is being executed. In a number of sectors, the enemy's defenses have been crushed. End quote. Ukrainian-aligned Deep State reported that attacks were launched from Mikilske, Pavlivka, and Shevchenko, and repeated Russian claims that an area of dachas north of the Kashlahach River had been captured during the Russian attack. SVT Swedish reporter Bengt Norberg, who is in Vulidar, tweeted that there was intense shelling all along the axis south of the five-square-kilometer town. Several hours later, he posted a brief video. We don't have a Swedish translator, and my Swedish is legitimately terrible, but we can report that he was calm, not dressed in protective gear, and even though I'm pretty sure he says the front is nearby, there were no sounds of artillery or fighting during his report. A still image from a drone video indicated that the Russian advance from Pavlivka had failed, with five Russian infantry fighting vehicles, or IFVs, destroyed. The picture was geolocated and matched to the weather conditions in Norborg's report. Some assessment here. The Russian MOD did not claim major offensive operations involving the 155th in their reports, and we have significant trust issues with battlefield claims from LNR and DNR leadership, which historically have been, for the most part, exaggerated or straight-up false. The current evidence suggests that if there was an advance to the dachas over the Kashlahach River, it ultimately failed. On the Velika-Novosilka axis, the Russian MOD claimed there was positional fighting near Prechistivka and Novosilka. In Mariupol, Ukrainian insurgents reported the Russian barracks tagged on Monday with, quote, 
glory to the armed forces of Ukraine, end quote, on the outer wall, exploded. There were claims that up to 200 Russian troops were in the compound at the time of the blast. The northern edge of Mariupol is within HIMARS range, but it would require bringing the Guided Multiple Launch Rocket System, or GMLRS, up to the line of conflict. We cannot confirm the claim. Russian collaborator and former mayor of Mariupol, Konstantin Ivan Vladimirovich Ivanchenko, is reportedly in a Donetsk hospital due to alcohol poisoning and is suffering from liver failure. Ivanchenko was fired on January 22nd, and there was no information on whether he was intentionally poisoned or drank low-quality homemade liquor. The new mayor is from the Novo Azovsk Rayon, Olen Morgun. Morgun's first announcement as mayor was a promise to restore the shattered main port of Mariupol, which was met with derision from city residents, who were more concerned with having heat restored. We reported yesterday that Russian-occupied Ilovaisk was hit by rockets fired by HIMARS. Russian state media agency Izvestia ignored OPSEC and provided a detailed battle damage assessment. Warehouses and train tracks were hit in the attack, which probably didn't fully achieve the mission objectives. Additional details were shared in a series of photos, which we do, of course, link to in our full situation report. Moving on to Kherson and Zaporizhia. Ukrainian Special Operation Forces, or SOF, launched an audacious amphibious assault on Novokhovka from the west bank of the Dnipro River to probe and test Russian defenses. Rybar wrote an account of the raid, claiming, quote, Ukrainian units made an attempt to land in the Korsunka area on the left bank of the Dnieper in the Kherson region. The armed forces of Ukraine on five boats landed on the shore. Three boats were sunk while still in the water, and the landing enemy units were destroyed in the village of Korsunka. On the right bank of the Dnieper, the Russian armed forces destroyed five enemy armored vehicles and up to 30 personnel. End quote. Our analyst team isn't sure how you land five boats on the shore and still have three sunk in the water before they landed on the shore. What Rybar didn't know when they wrote that report was that Ukrainian forces had the receipts. See, they recorded the entire mission with first-person body cameras and drones. Ukraine's Defense Intelligence of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, or GUR, said that the attack was coordinated with insurgents on the east bank of the Dnipro to neutralize a Russian forward operating base, or FOB. Mortar fire destroyed the Russian base, and SOF forces engaged in furious fighting with Russian troops. Russian commanders believed that a larger amphibious landing was occurring, so they deployed combat reserves, spetsnaz, and armored vehicles, and requested close air support. Ukraine claims that a Russian armored personnel carrier, or APC, was destroyed, 12 Russian soldiers were killed, and one was captured. The video showed two boats under heavy fire as they left to cross to the right bank of the Dnipro near dawn, with at least one Ukrainian soldier wounded. Some assessment here. Rybar's claim that all the boats sank and everybody died are literally impossible, and not only because of the events captured in the video, but by virtue of the video's release in the first place. Our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, and failed Mobik, Igor Gherkin Strelkov, dismissed Russian propagandists' claims that the attack was a failure and provided a sober assessment. 
In a post on Telegram, Strelkov called the raid an intelligence-gathering mission to test Russian defenses for a future larger landing to establish a bridgehead. Quick sidebar, it makes me uncomfortable when we agree with Strelkov. Although in this particular case, the GUR stated out loud that one of the mission objectives was, in fact, to test Russian defenses. In the evening, Novokokhovka was being heavily shelled by Ukrainian forces. The city of Kherson was shelled and hit by grad rockets fired by MLRS. Russian forces targeted the maternity hospital for the third time since November 8th, causing additional damage and setting the fourth floor on fire. An outpatient clinic was also damaged. The hospital is no longer being used due to the continuous attacks, and no one was injured. There were social media reports of explosions in Russian-occupied Radensk and claims that Olishki was shelled. In Zaporizhia, on the Huliapola axis, Rybar claimed that Russian reconnaissance units were probing Ukrainian defenses near Malinivka. On the Orikhiv axis, Wargonzo reported continued fighting in Novodanilivka without evidence, and Rybar claimed that a Russian reconnaissance unit probed Ukrainian defenses in Novoandrivka. West of Orikhiv, Wargonzo claimed that fighting continued for control of Mali Sherbaki. Operational News of the Armed Forces of Ukraine released a video claiming Ukrainian troops were in Kamyanskia on the east bank of the Dnipro River. The video was tightly framed and recorded at night, making geolocation impossible. Needless to say, we cannot verify the claim. In Russian-occupied Berdyansk, a car bomb injured Russian collaborator Valentina Mamai. Russian officials claimed she suffered a concussion in the blast, an extremely graphic picture we have elected not to share, however, indicated that Mamai was completely scalped in the explosion. A recent photo of Mamai showed she had long hair identical to the color of the flesh and hair in the back seat area of the damaged station wagon. Assessment here? Insurgents in Berdyansk are getting bolder and increasing the number of attacks on Russian collaborators. There is once again no change in the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, with Energoatom reporting the six reactors remain shut down. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, the composition of the Black Sea Fleet changed again, with 11 ships on patrol now including four missile carriers, capable of launching up to 32 caliber cruise missiles in total. We maintain our assessment. We maintain our assessment that Russian vessels are being rotated in order to reload. We maintain our assessment that Russian vessels are being ro- We maintain our assessment that Russian vessels are being rotated to reload after the January 14th missile strikes. Some assessment, keeping missile carriers at sea while launching MiG-31K sorties out of Belarus is likely an attempt to exhaust the Ukrainian people and air defenses mentally by creating one to two nationwide air raid alerts daily in addition to localized warnings. In north and northeast Ukraine, Russian forces pounded the Sumy Oblast for a second day, striking the Hromadas of Bilopilia Novoslobidske, Esmen, Shalehin, Miropilia, Krasnopilia, and Putovol with over 180 mortars and artillery shells. 
Bilopilia was hit by 48 artillery shells and 38 mortars, striking a long-term care psychological and neurological care facility. No patients or staff were wounded. In the village of Kucherivka, only three kilometers from the Russian border, a family of seven was hit by a mortar during an attack when they attempted to run from their damaged basement to a neighbor. One was killed and three were wounded, two of them severely. All three were hospitalized and two are not expected to survive. The GSAFU's morning report noted on the Kupiansk axis, quote, The adversary attempted offensives that have failed. All enemy attacks were repulsed by Ukrainian defenders, end quote. Without any other details. We've been reporting claims of pockets of fighting around Vilshana during the previous week and speculated that more activity was occurring than either belligerent was reporting. The GSAFU also reported the Hryanikivka area was shelled. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukrainian officials reported more than 15 senior government officials had resigned or been fired, with one under house arrest as part of ongoing corruption investigations. The criminal probes were kicked off as part of the membership process into the European Union. Kyiv was told that controlling government corruption was a key requirement to achieving EU membership and receiving macro financing. The representative of the European Commission, Anna Pisonero, commented on the wave of resignations and firings, saying, quote, We have taken into account the message that the National Anti-Corruption Bureau is investigating these cases. You know the general rule that we do not comment on ongoing investigations, but we welcome the fact that the Ukrainian authorities are taking this seriously, end quote. We do have more information on this in our full situation report on Patreon. Ukrainian President Zelensky signed the controversial Bill 8271. The law removes judicial discretion to give a military service member convicted of, quote, failure to comply with combat orders or escape from the battlefield or military unit, end quote, probation or other lighter sentence. The law also enables the military to do random and targeted drug and alcohol testing of active duty service members, persons liable for military service, and reservists while attending military training. Russia accused Ukraine of storing weapons at nuclear power plants, despite the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, inspecting all Ukrainian nuclear facilities in December and setting up permanent missions. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi said, quote, The result of these checks was negative, end quote, adding that this is the second time the IAEA has been called upon, quote, to debunk the accusations that illegal and very dangerous things are happening at these Ukrainian nuclear facilities. End quote. Assessment here. The new accusations were likely a delaying tactic by the Kremlin to derail ongoing negotiations about establishing a green zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and the withdrawal of Russian troops and weapons from the facility. PMC Wagner reported that Belarus was taking military vehicles out of long-term storage for refurbishment. The shared pictures, however, only showed two rows of military trucks with open hoods. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has reportedly caved from NATO international and internal pressure to license the transfer of Leopard 2 main battle tanks, or MBTs, from up to 10 nations. It is also widely reported that Berlin will authorize the transfer of 14 Leopard 2 MBTs to Ukraine, 
potentially providing up to 114 tanks if earlier reports are accurate. Although below the 300 tanks Ukraine has asked for, it would be enough equipment to supply eight companies. United States President Joe Biden will make a speech today, with numerous outlets reporting that he will announce the transfer of 30 to 50 Abrams M1 tanks to Ukraine. If the United States released 42 Abrams MBTs, it would be enough to equip three companies. With the addition of the Leopard 2 and Abrams M1, Ukraine's trail mix of tanks would grow to 14 different light, medium, and main battle tanks that fire five different calibers or types, smoothbore versus rifled, of ammunition, eight different main guns, and mechanics supporting up to 19 different engines. Some more assessment for you. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was politically cornered. After German Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht resigned, the new minister, Boris Pistorius, made it clear that the ministry was supportive of sending tanks to Ukraine and that Lambrecht had blocked reviewing the available inventory a week before her departure. Then, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said that she would not stand in the way of a transfer and that the German government had not been formally asked by Poland to transfer tanks, but it would likely be approved. Polish leaders added pressure, claiming that if no options were left, they would consider providing some of their Leopard 2 inventory without Germany's permission. That was likely a hollow threat due to the long-term need for spare parts. The United States government then offered to replace Leopard 2 tanks with M1A1 Abrams to any nation willing to transfer the MBTs to Ukraine. This was likely the final straw for Berlin. If Schultz continued blocking the transfers, Germany's Rheinmetall tank business was at risk. The transfer of M1A1 Abrams would convert countries accepting the offer into General Dynamics customers, likely ending future orders for German armor. It is also likely that the White House caved to Schultz's quid pro quo pressure to provide Abrams to Ukraine, with Germany wanting to show a united front and not bear the brunt of the ire from the Russian Federation. On the subject of ire, Russia's ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov, had a conniption, noun, a fit of rage or hysterics. Antonov wrote on his Telegram channel, quote, If the United States decides to supply tanks, then justifying such a step with arguments about defensive weapons, it will not work. This would be another blatant provocation against the Russian Federation, end quote. The United States Department of Defense will increase the production of non-precision artillery shells by 500% to the highest production level since the Korean War. Before Russia's large-scale invasion 11 months ago, the United States produced 14,155mm shells a month to support training, combat operations in global hotspots, and replace expiring munitions. Ukraine is currently consuming 90,000 shells a month, but it is important to note that other nations also produce 155mm NATO standard shells. The boost will increase production to 70,000 shells a month. In another breakthrough for Ukrainian support, the Security Policy Commission of the National Council of Switzerland adopted a parliamentary initiative to provide permission to re-export Swiss weapons and military technology from third-party countries to Ukraine. The change will enable multiple NATO nations to provide anti-aircraft systems and ammunition. If the change in Swiss law is approved, it will take effect on May 1st. Even more assessment, facing a similar situation to Germany, 
Zurich's arms industry was likely facing competitive pressure from the United States and nations like South Korea, which would have suppressed future sales. Cambodia and Japan announced that the two nations would continue their partnership to train Ukrainian soldiers in Explosive Ordnance Disposal, or EOD, with foreign ministers Yoshimasa Hayashi of Japan and Prak Sokon of Cambodia reaching an agreement yesterday. Cambodia was one of the most heavily mined nations on the planet after 30 years of war, and its training program for EOD is considered one of the best in the world. The lower house of the Italian parliament approved a government decree on supplying military aid to Ukraine until the end of 2023. The decree enables Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney to transfer military equipment to Ukraine through 2023 without seeking authorization from parliament. Let's talk about Russian mobilization. With a quick reminder that we will discuss sexual violence in this segment and in the next one, and if that is a sensitive topic for you, please feel free to skip ahead to the geopolitics segment. Timestamps are in the description. In Russian-occupied Crimea, the stealth mobilization of residents continued. The commissariat in Sevastopol has been ordered to replace military losses by mobilizing civilian employees of the Black Sea Fleet. The civilian workers are part of the military reserve and have to register their driver's license information, specialty, and rank with the commissariat. We had assessed on January 12th that when Moscow-appointed chief of the general staff Valery Gerasimov to command the special military operation and demoted general of the army Sergei Sorovikin to his deputy, Part of the motivation was to dim PMC Wagner head Yevgeny Prigozhin's star. In a sign that Prigozhin realizes that his Game of Thrones maneuvers against Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu have not gone to plan, he appealed to Chairman of the State Duma, Vyacheslav Volodyan, to protect his mercenaries, including former prisoners, from slander and discredit. He requested modifying the current criminal code's so-called don't-say-war law to include PMCs. Prigozhin complained that some outlets of Russian state media and telegram channels are publishing negative information about Wagner's mercenaries. He accused journalists and mill bloggers of, quote, assisting the enemy and, quote, denying people the right to atone for their guilt before society for the crimes they once committed, end quote. Kremlin watchers expect his request to be denied. Our favorite curmudgeon and FSB Colonel Strelkov mocked Prigozhin's letter, pointing out that Prigozhin does plenty to discredit himself, like sharing videos of, quote, extrajudicial execution with a sledgehammer, end quote. Sanctions and budget restrictions have caused significant delays to Russia's military intelligence space programs. Three programs have been delayed. Repay, a high-Earth orbit electronic intelligence-gathering satellite, Hercules KV, a global space-based command and control relay system, and Sphere, a unified satellite communication system. Hercules KV is facing the longest delay, with the launch pushed back to 2027. Soldiers of the LNR 2nd Army Corps made a video appealing to Colonel General Ramzan Kadyrov to discipline members of Ahmad to stop Kadyrovites from, quote, raping brothers in arms. The issue of rape within the Russian armed forces goes back to the Soviet era, with conscripts calling the practice, among other acts of violence and hazing inflicted during training and deployments, quote, the terror of the grandfathers. 
In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minimal graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, including sexual violence, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russian so-called military police released a video showing the interrogation of a Mobik who shot civilians in Ukraine. Russian sources claim two Mobiks attempted to rape a woman, and when someone tried to stop them, they tied up the civilians and executed them. The graphic video shows only one interrogation. The second Mobik appears to have already received an extrajudicial execution. Once again, we do link to most of the photos and videos we reference in our full situation report. In geopolitical news, Turkey indefinitely canceled a planned meeting with Finland and Sweden, where the three were preparing to negotiate NATO membership. The meeting, which was supposed to take place in Brussels in February, was postponed at the request of Ankara, Turkish diplomatic sources said. On January 23rd, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan claimed that his nation would not ratify Sweden or Finland's application to NATO, citing a Quran-burning incident outside the Turkish embassy in Stockholm as the final straw. In economic news, Russia has an unusual tea problem. And I don't mean a certain someone's special polonium blend. The hot drink is an integral part of Russian society, with 65% of all tea sold in single-use bags. And that's a problem. See, there aren't any filter paper manufacturers in the Russian Federation, and the supply is running out as sanctions bite harder into day-to-day Russian life. Ukraine and Turkey finished the legal framework for Baykar to open a factory that produces TB2 drones and the new jet-powered Kiselelma drone in Ukraine. Production is expected to start within two years. Ukraine will provide parts and assemblies, including the jet engines for the new Kisilelma drone. The manufacturing deal was established before Russia's wide-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of last year. The ruble was unchanged, with an official exchange rate of 69 for one U.S. dollar. Western oil prices declined, with WTI crude falling to $80 a barrel and Brent dropping to $86 while Russian Ural's crude fell to $59 a barrel. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market dropped to $2.64 a gallon, or $0.70 a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures continued to drop due to low consumption and high supply, falling to €58 per megawatt hour for February and March 2023 delivery. Chicago SRW wheat futures climbed to $7.45 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.